Hey, it's me, Robert Bomander, your guide to the world of big years and the birders who are crazy enough to do them. I'm out on my deck in Brantford, Ontario, and today is May 1st, 2023, and it is the official start of migration season here in Southern Ontario. You know, birders from far and wide, some doing their own big years, I'm sure, are migrating here to Canada's spring birding hotspot, Point Pelee National Park, to welcome the songbirds home. Now down in Ohio, many birders will be making their way to the biggest week in American birding. Sue and I unfortunately had to cancel our last trip there as the COVID pandemic and lockdowns were just beginning to be felt in the spring of 2020. Down in Texas, the winged migration begins a little earlier. And in fact, my guest, Laura Keen, just saw her first golden-cheeked warbler of the year, a beautiful songbird that sadly will likely never make its way up north. In 2016, inspired by a close friend, Laura began her own journey across North America doing a photographic big year, recording a record-breaking 763 species in the continental U.S., and adding more birds in Hawaii to finish with 815 species, the vast majority of which she was able to photograph, an achievement in itself, as many of us birder photographers know. Laura's story of doing a big year is as inspiring as it is exciting, and I was lucky enough to spend an hour on the phone with her via FaceTime recently, and, well, let's let her begin the story. Down in where, Texas, it's a pretty yeah. warm day and lots of butterflies and golden-cheeked warblers around, so life wow. is good oh, here. Really glad to have you come on my fledgling podcast. Very <laughs> much appreciate it. And Eve Morell said, if you're going to talk to me, you better be talking to Laura Keene as well. Asked Laura, you know, have for at least a couple of years had the record for the ABA area for a woman and I'd love to learn a little bit about that and I'd love to learn a bit about your whole birding adventure. Maybe let's start with how you ended up getting into birding in the first place. I took field biology in high school and I was lucky enough to have a biology teacher who was into birding and we would go on canoe trips and he would point out cliff swallows and kingfishers. But along the way, I saw an indigo bunting, which just was my spark bird. So, so with babysitting money, I bought my first uh, Peterson's field guide back in the seventies. And so I was hooked on birding from that point. But once I went to college, I did a few field trips with the biology department, but then I went to pharmacy school and got extremely busy. And with that career and family and children, I mostly birded on vacation and in my backyard. Which seems to be the story of a lot of birders in their journey into birding. Mine was a very different journey. I was not a birder in 2011 and went to the movie The Big Year and literally changed my life in two hours and I read the book and decided around November 25th or so that I was going to try that in 2012 and wow so that was my journey into birding and I've never quit <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where you started as a youngster but as you found yourself with more time how did that evolve into 
a big year and also how did it how did you get the inspiration for it and also the education to be able to do a big year because I know it takes more than just I think I'll do a big year like I did. (laughs) I lived in Ohio I think sometime in the 90s my best friend said let's take some photography classes Mm -hmm. so we classes at a community college and she said there's this really magical place that I've heard of up on Lake Erie called McGee Marsh. Oh, yes. So this is while we both had families. And so she, you know, we said, let's just take a trip up there. We had no clue. <laughs> what it was going to be? What it was going to be. So it was like a one-day trip from, it was about a three hours each way. The next year, it was two days. The next year, it was three days. And so this was our Mother's Day weekend. <laughs> we, we, that was our Mother's Day gift from our families. We would go to McGee Marsh. And as we, as I like to say, as our kids started fledging the nest, our trips got longer. And we just got really totally hooked on warblers. And, and I was involved with the Ohio Ornithological Society. I was the photo editor for the Ohio Cardinal. And, but Mostly, I was a very busy pharmacist, and so I had a weird schedule, worked a lot of nights on call, and so I was out birding at times that nobody else was. But being a photographer, that's okay, but I just kind of learned on my own a lot. I picked up a lot on my own, and it's a lot easier if you have someone you know, that's more knowledgeable to be birding with, and I would occasionally get together with Cincinnati Bird Club and always found that great, I it was, but it was just never easy with my schedule. But though my I'd say the reason why I got into bird, it got into the big year was you talk about it, you think about it. I read Ken Kaufman's book, I saw the big year movie and I'd done like an Ohio big year. I wanted to like photograph so many species. Hmm. And I did vacation big year and I got five hundred birds photographed in my vacation big year. But it was always kind of in the back of your head, you'd love to do that, but there's absolutely no way you could ever do something so crazy. <laughs> but my best friend that I was talking about in neighbor. She, um, 2014, we were at McGee Marsh and she wasn't feeling well. And it turned out by the time we got home, she went to, she was basically admitted to the hospital the next day with leukemia. I'd say the, we went through, I'd say she went through all of the chemo and going through that with your best friend. It's you, it makes you look at life differently. Mm-hmm. At, uh, and sorry, I didn't mean to. No, I can little. understand that. I believe me. <laughs> But yeah, so I I think you start looking at life and the experiences differently. So it was it was a year long journey for her. She lost it her battle in 2015, and it was a learning experience. And I am grateful because I feel like living that through her and all the talking that we did and encouragement from her. She said, "You got to do a big year." She kept encouraging me. She's there's things that I want to do. I wish I'd done. I wish I'd taken more pictures of wood ducks Mm. and just little things like that. And, but she's like, you got to do a big year. And she just kept saying this to me. And it's after she was gone, it was like, my kids are all out of college. It's, and work was becoming a kind of, it felt like an existence instead of, Mm -hmm. that was what, that was the impetus. And I said to my husband, I said, I'm thinking about doing this. And he was working a lot out of town and he was very busy. And so it really, time-wise, it was just like the perfect time to do it in 2016 for me. I think I was, I was still working part-time. I was still working my job. I would come back and work these long weekends, three, 
three weeks or every or so. And just to keep my foot in the door with work. And mm. I already had a vacation that was a, a birding trip scheduled with friends to Mexico in February. So I, I already had a lot of my days that I could have been devoting toward my big year kind of up with working and stuff. I look at those days that I was working and I would, I would look at it and say, gee, I could have done better had I not gone to Mexico, but I only missed one bird. So I can't really say that. And, and you set a pretty amazing record too. More important it and a lot of birders who are doing big years, right. they do yeah. not make time for their families. And I, yeah. I can say I was guilty of that in 2012. I jumped into it and I really didn't even tell people ahead of time that is what I was going to do. My wife was like, you're going again, you're going again. You have to go there. You have to go there. I have to go to Arizona. Did you have any situations like that where you felt like, oh, I could have been better or nicer to my family or friends? <laughs> my, my goal at the beginning of the year was to make sure that I was with my grandchildren, all three of my grandchildren on their birthdays. They would remember that. My husband he was traveling a lot already. And after going through losing my best friend and losing in the few years before that, I lost both of my parents. I think he, he said he was very encouraging. And at some point, like a couple of months into it, I paid for the at two trip up front and I paid for a photographic, like a trip to Nome up front. Then by, I think by March, I think I could run out of money by the time I hit a certain and I said to my husband, I said, I'm just going to, and he's an engineer. He kept spreadsheets of ever looking at these spreadsheets. And I said, I'm going to have to stop birding in August. Basically, I'm not going to get to go to Alaska because I knew that the amount of money I had set aside wasn't going to last the whole year. And he said, this is the happiest I've seen you in so long. And I'll do anything I can to make it possible for you to continue. And I have to say, by the end of the year, my friends were calling him St. Dave. Never complained once. You realize what a special person that you're married to, but total support from him and my family, my kids and my grandkids even were making me little, sending me notes and it was just really sweet. So I think that being in a relationship, it's it's a 50-50 thing and you have to give when they need it and they have to give when you need it. And he obviously saw that was something that I needed. <laughs> that is a wonderful story. It's something we all have to be very aware of that our friends and family are the ones that are making it possible for us to continue and right. not making us feel down about the fact that we're having a fun adventure. Right. I said, we used to drop, we would drop each other off at the airport and pick each other up. You pull up. And at some point about halfway through the year, when I would come back home, he would park the car and come in to greet me at the, and it's, I just thought that was so special mm -hmm. that he because going traveling was just such a something that we did drop off, pick up, drop off. Mm. It's like felt made me feel important that he would be standing there waiting for me to give me a hug when I got back from each trip, which was I thought just such a, a supportive thing for him to do. That, that is wonderful. So leading up to January first, obviously you had to do preparations, and I know you mentioned spreadsheets. There are a lot of birders <laughs> who do immense preparation for their big years. And there are other ones that just sometime in May realize that they've seen 500 species and just start a big year then. What was the preparation like for you? I was trying to prioritize the birds that, like the owls, the mm -hmm. months that you can owls, like seeing grouse, 
you have to schedule those, the owls for February, sex and bog, and the, the grouse in like March and April. So you have a, a little list of things that you can see during these months the best. And then you've got the, obviously the goals and things that are easier to see in the wintertime. So you've got a prioritized list. There's some things you can see year round. I was in this more for the journey than mm-hmm. I was to go and see every single bird. Plus, I was doing a photographic big year. So for mm-hmm. me, I had to take a picture of everything. And that's what I love about birding is mm-hmm. just taking pictures and slowing down and enjoying things. So I wanted, I wanted to see birds every month. I wasn't in a big hurry to see birds that I knew I could see in December. So I wanted to have something to look forward to. I wasn't, I didn't want to have all these birds and then three months of sitting around waiting for something to show up. A lot of big year birders tend to want to get that really high number by the end of May so that they just stay on top the whole year. And in your case, you thought, I'm going to see the birds anyway. Why do I have to have this big list early in the year if I'm going to see something in December? So I I knew which birds I could see year round. I, I, I focused on, here's the places now starting in January. There's this many rare birds and where do I go first? And I'm going to try and then travel to the place that has the most rare birds for the best bang for the buck, basically. Yes. And I started off traveling with my husband to Vancouver to see a red wing. And we had a little trip. We went there at the beginning of the year. And then the cheapest place to go is Texas. And there were four rarities in Texas right then. So mm-hmm. I went the cheapest ticket. So I went to Texas and I kind of just followed that path. And it was such a crazy year that I kept chasing, it seemed like I was just constantly chasing a rare bird. I did a Canada big year last year, and that was my January and February, just going back and forth across the country. And I was doing trips from Newfoundland to Vancouver and back to Nova Scotia and to Alberta. And the first two months were just crazy, but sometimes you think it's only one bird, but all those one birds really add up if you chase the rare ones early in the year. Yeah. Yeah. What were, what were some of the other rare ones that were in Texas that you were chasing? Well, my nemesis that year was the golden crowned warbler, which I'd seen before. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was in this park in Texas, in Refugio, Texas, that you know, I would go there and it would be seen. And then it just seems like it wouldn't be around for a, for several days. I tried more times than I can even count to see that that (laughs) golden crowned warbler. I assume you did spring migration in late April. Yeah. And it seemed, like I said, Zaxenbog was like a, it was a year where there were no owls Mm. in Zaxenbog. Then when it came to spring migration in Texas, the day that I was supposed to go there, there was massive flooding and you couldn't even get out to where the, where the Boy Scout woods and all that. That was all like underwater. It seemed like you just had to play play it by ear so instead i went up to oregon and washington to see owls and then came back and instead of hitting those areas in texas i went along the coast and along near corpus the area along there and there were i got i actually got a lot of birds there so it was it was, it was my first experience ever doing springtime birding in texas because i lived in ohio and every single spring i was in McGee Marsh. It was a great experience to bird in a different place in the spring. So I did, we've done obviously McGee Marsh in the spring, but I did a summer trip to McGee Marsh once and very different experience when you're the only one on the boardwalk, but (laughs) I still saw a really nice selection of birds that, that day and felt I had the entire marsh to myself, which is a neat feeling. I 
did the same thing with the Zaxxon bog by going in the summer. And I thought I was the only one crazy enough to do that. But I've talked to a couple other birders who also went there in the summer because they wanted to see it in a very different light than you do during the depths of winter. Yeah. And you're probably went to Pele. Point Pele. For... We do Point Pele every year. Yeah. The biggest fallout I ever had in spring migration in Canada was at Rondeau, not at Point Pele. <laughs> and they all talk about the fallouts at Point Pele, but my Rondeau one was fun because I think we stopped counting Canada warblers at 25. And that's just something yeah. that you yeah. you don't experience other than a fallout. And you're also stepping over birds that yeah. are just on the ground. What's your best fallout experience? I'd say probably at McGee. There was probably a couple of days when I had over more than 25 species of warbler. Just those real amazing days where the weather was such that they would be flying up, starting to fly out over the lake and then come back. And they come in different waves there, the early migrants in the middle and then the late migrants, but then you'd get the females from the early migration and just had a whole lot of a whole lot of birds. And it was just had a few years like that were just so fantastic some days. So you said as you said you prepaid for Atu and every birder who does a big year the full ABA big year has to do Atu. And was this before or after they stopped landing on the island? Yeah, this was after. So we were able to go with John Pushak. He had a trip every year and it was by boat. You would fly into ADAC and then take the boat out from ADAC out to Atu, which would give you the opportunity to see the pelagic species, mm. whiskered auklets. And we saw the short-tailed albatross, mm. which was obviously something that these birds that are in your dreams that you'll never ever see. I made myself quite seasick taking pictures of the short-tailed cross. <laughs> so you get to Atu on the boat and do you do like day trips on a Zodiac? Yeah, so you're basically in a kind of a protected harbor. The boat mm-hmm. is and you go out on the, the Zodiac to shore and it was always 10 to 10 to 15 miles, maybe even more than that. We had bicycles. I've heard of, yeah. I heard the stories of the bicycles, yeah. and yeah. I'm thinking, I can barely ride 20 miles on flat ground, and I hear the stories of some of these chases to different spots on the island where you have to bike 15 miles to get there. How was that? It was rather level. You're, you're, these are paths that are clear still and even like the runway it's it's there's not a lot of up and downhill involved that i I did go because i hadn't ridden a bike in ages so i did go out and go bike riding with my friend just to see if i could do 10 miles (laughs) (laughs) to survive it and i it was on a bike like along the river so it's okay i can do this it was i wouldn't say it was easy all the time but it was but we did the first day probably by foot and then uh, we were supposed to be there, I think, like 12 days, and the boat ended up having issues. So we were stuck in ADAC the first two days, and so we didn't have a place to really stay there. ADAC doesn't have a lot of lodging or mm-hmm. cart, but they were able to find find some places. So we stayed in two different places, had to switch between the two, and had a vehicle that we needed to put water in about every, every hour because... 
<laughs> but we, we birded there and we had a pair of smews, so it wasn't all that bad. But so the boat finally made it in. And then we were, I think we were on the island for four days and the captain got word that there was a big storm coming in that was going hitting from the direction of that was the boat was sheltered, but it was going to be coming from that direction. And he said, we got to leave. And so you're thinking four days here. That's not nearly (laughs) enough. We took off out of there and stayed at Agatu Island and a protected harbor there that was protected from the winds. So did the change of scenery benefit your trip or did uh, do you feel like you missed out because of that? Seems like storms bring in the good stuff. So the, the, we went back and when we had to go just by foot because they didn't have time to land the bikes. So it was the next few, couple of days were probably 10 to 15 miles. We walked every day, but it was the last day there we got the mix of rarities that we were there for. We were having these shorebirds come in and talking like, oh, we had the Ateric Sandpiper and lots of different... Pintailed Snipe, things like that. Yeah, someone else got the Pintailed Snipe, Gray-tailed and Wandering Tattlers and Eyebrowed Thrush. And, you know, so we had some good we had some good birds come in there that last day. But the hard part was leaving, knowing that there's probably more mauler birds on their way. If we could be there for one or two more days, we could probably more so it was hard to leave but yeah Sandy Camito told me that he stayed there for four weeks and then when we got back to ADAC there was a far eastern curlew that happened to be there so we were able to get vehicles to jump in the car and go see that before our flight that's a pretty nifty last bird isn't it that was a pretty good last bird it was all in all it was a wonderful trip it was just going to the place that you've heard so much about Mm -hmm. some friends had visited there and told me stories about it and so it was just a beautiful trip and I, I wouldn't that for anything. I'm experience. hoping to sometime in the next few years, be able to schedule that on for one of my birding trips. My only experience with what Atu might be like is you know, from a few old pictures and from the movie. How well did they depict at life on Atu in the movie? I'd say the the buildings are have had a lot of tear since since I think it was in the like 2008 was the last year that they were there. There's a lot of wear and tear on the buildings, but you can still see the walls where people sign their name and the number of birds that they had. And every year they put the number of birds. So we were able to put our names and the number of birds we had on the wall inside the building. We kept our bikes there by the building where they stayed. But I'd say look the the runway looked exactly like it was depicted. Everything looked, it was so well depicted in the movie. What I did as part of my Canada Big Year, one of my goals was to visit every site that in British Columbia that they shot scenes for the Big Year. And uh-huh. so I got up to the Yukon and the Dempster Highway and mm-hmm. traveled to some of the places where they set up for their version of Atu. And uh-huh. I actually stood in the spot where there's a bird that they all raced out of the cabin to get, rustic bunting. And I stood at the exact place overlooking where Jack Black slipped on the ice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is the, for me, is a funny story because that was not in the script. And yet, Sandy Comito tells a story about the fact that Greg Miller on the Anchorage trip just before they got to Atu 
slipped on the ice in the exact same way. <laughs> and you're up in the Yukon. I, I don't know if you've been up there. It's, there's nothing there and there's no cell phone signals and there's nobody to help you if something goes wrong. And that's right. uh, it would be when you're on the island. Yeah, it's the most remote. I've never been on a boat that long and never seen another boat the entire time. Mm -hmm. It's that remote from everyone. It's an interesting, it's just a, you have to be very careful. You don't want to hurt yourself while you're there. And I guess you're very careful on some of the train when you're hiking to make sure you don't twist that ankle. <laughs> Which is, it, and the terrain there could be very difficult. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nesting geese there. Everything's rock. There's a lot of rocks and a lot of geese. There's a lot of things to slip on. <laughs> and what was the rarest bird on Attu that you saw that year? Was there one that was like a new bird for the island? No, nothing, nothing super rare. I was really lucky to, I happened to be kind of lagging behind a bit and with, I went to get things on my bicycle and I turned around and there was a Eurasian hobby sitting probably no more than 20 feet from me looking at me. And uh, so uh, that was probably the, uh, the most exciting bird for me on the trip, just because I saw it and I was, there was one other person that I was with and we radioed the others to come. They had already taken off on their bikes to go back to the to get on the boat and they turned around and came back, but it, it flew and it flew like we were just below the runway and it flew up and over the runway and never to be seen again, but we got pictures of it. So that was just a cool experience. Well, with see, sometimes like the tortoise and the hare, the tortoise wins the exactly. rare bird. <laughs> that That's cool. It's always fun when yeah. you're the first one to find something and you can let yeah. other people know that it's there. So from Attu, what was what was next? And where and how many birds, by the way, did you leave Attu and Alaska with that at that point? Oh gosh. I think that I had about seventy-five species on that trip. But definitely it was more the experience that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Again, it's like I you're doing a big year and the number of birds is important, but it was more like a big year of experience, doing mm -hmm. things you've always wanted to do and just doing it and enjoying it. And have you mm -hmm. felt like you've had a little bit of influence on people in pushing them to do, if not a big year, travel that they never would have expected to do? Yeah, I've, I've done my big year presentation multiple times. People keep asking me to do it. So it's, it's I'm doing it for the Texas Ornithological Society. And man, mm -hmm. I did it last month for a Laredo birding festival. It's, it's fun to share. And I, like I said, I was, I did a photographic big year. So that was my goal to to photograph as many species as I could. And, and I think it's a, I think it's a good way to, to do a big year is to re record it for you, for everybody else. And it, it makes the presentations a little more interesting if you have pictures too, I think. <laughs> I was a photographer before a birder and I know what it's like to not get that picture you really wanted. What I actually, as a side note, I found that Birders that I've met that have birded for 10, 20 years and decide to get a camera and start photographing the birds, they find that it's almost very frustrating because they didn't realize that you can't see birds through your camera the way you see them through your binoculars. And right. what bird was the one that you had hoped to get a really good picture of that you couldn't? I'd say the Eurasian hobby was the one because I had just stuck my camera inside my bag and strapped it onto my bike turned around and I've got this Eurasian hobby right in front of me with no camera and I'm looking at it through my bins and fortunately the other guy had 
he had stuck his in his backpack and he was able to pull it out and snap pictures. So those weren't even my pictures. So that's one that I, you know, I'm uh, getting pictures of. Like I saw 815 species and I photographed 792 and that's one I missed. <laughs> Thankfully you had the person with you. When yep. I was on a pelagic with Eve Morell in 2016 and mm-hmm. we came across the blue-footed booby, and I knew where it was. And it just didn't show up in any of my pictures that I took. And luckily, Eve took a couple of pictures of it, and she was able to share the blue-footed booby picture with me, (laughs) because that's the only picture of that bird I have. So when did you go to Hawaii? Because that was the first year that Hawaii was on the ABA list, or it was... I'm not sure what I've heard now, but right. the ABA so it, was like, we're putting it on the list and people went to Hawaii in 2016, but they didn't technically accept it until 2017. Right. Yeah, they had said initially that, and I think they were trying to be nice and say, it's not going to count for big year birders in 2016 because it was voted on in October at the annual meeting in October. And or at the end of October, beginning of November, it would have basically been, I guess they looked at it like you're only going to have, unless you've already gone, which why would you go when you're doing a big year? You're only going to have two months to see these birds. And so I think they were trying to be nice and say it's only going to count after they actually get the list because they didn't even have a list of birds yet. Cited upon which of the birds in Hawaii were going to be on the ABA list. But then we did petition it. After the fact, we we decided to go. I know Olaf was the first one to go in November. Then I ran into John Weigel. And so John said, I'm, gonna, I'm thinking about going to Hawaii at the beginning of December. So if you want to go, we can team up on it. So I actually ended up going up to, flying up to Gamble to see a pine bunting. And then I went to Nome to get the McKay's bunting and then they had this they had the Cyber Monday sale for tickets from Anchorage to Honolulu for $99. <laughs> Can't pass that up. So I met John down there and Jared Clark who was a guide in Newfoundland and um, Oh no Jared. Jared, yeah. I saw so, the Red Wing with him last year. Yeah. And so John had met up with Jared earlier in the year. I hadn't met Jared before, but he had gotten Jared to come down and guide us. I'd only been, I'd been to Hawaii before and I had birded only on Maui and Jared was a huge help. <laughs> and basically every single bird that we targeted, we got, it was amazing. We just did three islands with Jared thinking that is six days and thinking, got to get back to the, got get back to the mainland because we got birds to get back there. But really nothing showed up in those six days. That was something that we needed. So it worked out fine. And then Jared left. And so John and I then went to to Kauai and birded there. So we really, it was really an amazing trip. So then we had to, we, we made an appeal to the ABA and on the second vote, then they decided to make it countable for us too. Cause it, it would have just been an asterisk, but it would probably still been accepted as it's the highest number. I see that they, they still like to publish the continental and the continental plus Hawaii. I, I think yeah. the argument was for years that if you can count birds on Attu, why can't you count them in Hawaii? But yeah, so now it's like the ABA is everything, including Hawaii, and then you got the continental, and yeah, which is 
the old ABA, basically. Mm. Realistically, we knew that we, there's a lot of birds that nest the shearwaters and you can see them, the petrels, they nest like right there along the, along some of the paths even. Mm -hmm. So we knew that they were going to all be out to sea. And so we knew that our number wasn't going to be as high as it could be Mm -hmm. because we were earlier in the year. And, but it was like, still, we made a good, we made a good attempt there in Hawaii, but we still dipped on a lot of things that would be so easy had we gone just a few months earlier. And I guess birders who have done the big years since 2016 are targeting Hawaii at a different time. And like John, John decided to do a second big year in 2019, just because he felt like he could do better in Hawaii and focused on, he did get more species. I'm not sure. Maybe he's, he ended up with 839 maybe. Yeah, I think he got more species in total, but his continental list wasn't, wasn't as high as uh, it was the previous year. That might be because of going for big numbers and doing mm-hmm. Hawaii at a certain time. And it's, and, and so many of the numbers are just, it, it just depends on how good of a year you have. Like in Alaska, I went to gamble in the fall and I sat there for 17 days and didn't see a single new bird because the winds were all coming from the East. Mm. So the rare birds there were like golden crown kinglets. That That's funny because when I went to New Brunswick for the stellar sea eagle in November, did you chase that bird? The stellar sea. I chased it twice. I, of course, I live in Texas, and it was yeah, it was right far. there. <laughs> it was on the area that it was here. Was all private property, so mm. it was like private access to. So people tried like the next day, and I don't think that I would have had a chance to do it because nobody saw it down here after it was first seen. So when it was up in Boston, I met up with Evie, and mm. we tried for it. Got there a day late, <laughs> and then and then it was up in Maine. So. Then I went up there last year, and I think in January, and saw it in Maine. So I finally did see it. <laughs> I've met a lot of people that have chased that bird all over the place. I started looking for it in July of 2021. I went up to Quebec to look for it and didn't see it. Missed it by a day. And then during my Canada big year, I missed it in Nova Scotia, then in Newfoundland, then in Nova Scotia again, and had no hope that bird was ever going to show up again before the end of the year. And then late in November, I was in Quebec, and all of a sudden my emails and my texts are all lighting up uh, that the seagull was in New Brunswick. And I'm like, okay, where am I? How far is it? And I look at the, I look at my map on the phone and I see, oh, it's only seven hours away driving through blizzards and darkness and roads with no lights. And I got there the next morning and then didn't appear again until like four in the afternoon. And finally we got to see it. So that was, for me, that was one of the most exciting birds of the year Uh, within the i guess continental u.s what was one of the chases that felt like that to you i started out the year in canada ended the year in canada there was a common shell duck i believe it was there was a pair of common shell duck yes Um, and so it was it was really fun i i like i told you i was waiting till end of the year to see certain species and i ended up still needing a couple of birds and um on the east coast so my last trip was to see I think it was as simple as purple sandpiper. I needed mm-hmm. purple sandpiper. And, uh, and then, so then the common shell ducks showed up. And 
So then I had a just a fun drive up to see the common shell duck with with three of my friends, one being Neil Hayward and and, and another person who held the lower 48 big year record, Chris mm-hmm. Hitt, and another friend and Bert Filmer. And it was just like a fun, just a fun trip with friends to end the year. And that was probably one of the trips that I just look back on being a, just a super fun trip, which was much better than earlier in the year when I took a, a trip to the wild goose chase trip that you always have to do. Yes. <laughs> and this was January. And so I picked up a friend in Columbus and we drove up there and I got the, the pink footed goose. And I think the, the barnacle goose, <laughs> the barnacle goose was, was stopped being seen where it was. So we took a detour and there was a winter storm approaching. And so we were trying to, we managed to get it in New Jersey. And then we, took off driving and got stuck on the Pennsylvania turnpike for seven or eight hours <laughs> behind an accident. So you're just dead stopped. But like I said, we're birders. And so we had, we were, we had warm clothing. We mm-hmm. had all, we had food, we had, got had cooler, we had plenty of, so we just sat there, but I was trying to get back to Ohio to see a kelp goal. <laughs> Ooh, that's a really good bird to me. That's, is that yeah. like the rarest gull and that you can see in north america or one of them probably one of the rarest yeah yeah i saw a, a white-footed gull but i saw that on the east coast of coney island <laughs> but yes one of, one of the harder ones to find that's for sure and there were also times in my experience where i was in the middle of nowhere and i felt like i was in a position where i wasn't necessarily afraid but was very worried about my safety and there's certain certainly times in texas did you eve told me that there were times as a woman that she did not feel comfortable but she had to use her sort of street smarts as she said (laughs) to get herself out of situations were there times where that affected you you're, you're always aware of that i think probably the place that i felt the least safe was in when I was looking for the spotted dove in Los Angeles, <laughs> and it just because you're driving around these streets, and I remember, I stopped a couple of places and walked around. But you got a camera, you got it's. So I'm driving around looking, and I remember this person I passed several times, and as I'm passing at this red light, they came up and started opening my door, and I'm Ooh. like, oh, <laughs> and I thought. I, they must have thought that I was trying to buy something or sell something or something. But that made me so startled that, you know, there there were plenty of times that I saw bears. I wanted to go out and look for owls at night. It's, yeah, I just saw a bear here earlier in the day. I actually saw a bear. I didn't feel so safe, like, going out by myself and looking in the dark looking for an owl. But fortunately, I found other people that happened to be doing the same thing, so I felt safer. But there's a lot of personal safety things that you have to just to use your best judgment with and you're desperate enough to look for an owl, you just go out and you do it anyway. <laughs> I think, like I said, I, after going through this journey with my friend and you just realize you, everybody's going to die and this is living, you got to live and mm-hmm. you got to take chances. You've got to, you can't just put your, you're going to be very safe if you stay at home. <laughs> and what would you think is the best piece of advice you can give to someone who is contemplating a big year, whether it's, ABA or just even a, a county big year or a state big year, what would you tell people who are on the fence or think that it's something they could never do? How would you advise them? I, I just would tell them to follow their passion. If that's their passion, they're going to be so enriched by doing it. If 
just doing something for an entire year that you love. It's, it's probably the most fulfilling thing you can possibly do. So I would encourage anyone to follow whatever passion that they have and, and just live and make the most of every day and enjoy it and see, look for the sunset. I just wanted to see as many sunsets as I could. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I took pictures of every single butterfly and every, every whale. I, I, it's just, you just get so much out of birding more than birding. Mm-hmm. You're looking, you got the environment, you've got the animals and the, everything around you, the flowers and just embrace it and make the most of it and enjoy it. And that is, it's funny because I was so focused on the birds that I would get home and I'd be flipping through pictures to show Sue the bird. And then I flipped past a picture of a bear and she said, wait, what's that? And it was like, I go back and oh, it's a, it's, it's a bear. It's a bear. You didn't tell me you saw bears. I get focused on things. I don't think that other people might want to see some of the other things I experienced besides the birds. We were in the Kenai Peninsula. I was with a guide and he just says, get in the car. What? Get in the car. We're going in the car right now. (laughs) Okay. And so we get in the car and he drives us out of the parking spot and we just watched this huge bear, he called it a brownie, walking <laughs> out of the woods and right across the road where we just were. And I learned that when I went, it was in the Northwest Territories to that you don't go anywhere without your bear spray. And <laughs> did you carry bear spray with you on those nights? I did. Some of the time you can't fly with it. It's an expensive yeah. thing to, that you have to leave behind. Yeah. Uh, but I learned you leave it on the table in the hotel or in the lobby for the next person. Glad right. that I didn't have to use it. <laughs> yeah, I was always within a place that was safe when I did see them. Thank you so much. There's probably another hour of conversation we could have about the Kalima Warbler and the Dry Tortugas. But I really appreciate you taking the time to share with me that incredible adventure that you had and really talk about some of the more personal things that made doing a big year even more special for you. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'm glad to talk to you and being able to talk with birders who have done big years and share that with a wider audience. And just the idea that you can go out and just make a big list of something and travel to places you'd never been before. And that's the one thing for me, it was the places birding took me were as incredible as some of the birds I saw when I got there. uh, It was Al Levington who said, sometimes birding is more about traveling to the birds than getting there. And the the trips, the trips Mm -hmm. are some of the best things I've ever done. Yeah. Enjoy spring migration because you get it a little bit earlier there in Texas than we do. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again. And you take care. And I very much appreciate you joining me for the last hour. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. So after that, how can you not rush out and do a big year? I'm certainly inspired to do another one. Maybe it being May uh, 1st, perhaps a big migration month. Anyway, thanks to Laura, who even six years after her big year is still in fourth place all time for the continental U.S. and seventh, one behind Eve Morell, 
But it's not where you are in the standings or how many birds you've seen, but the places you've been and the birders you've met along the way that really add meaning to the lists we make on our big year journeys. I'm just saying that. I don't really believe it. You know, sometimes, yeah, it is the number of birds we count and the lists we make, sure. And I guess I'll just keep doing that. Here in Brantford, Ontario, the rain has stopped, the birds are out, and now it's my turn to get out there and begin the spring migration warbler count. Until next time, get out there, enjoy spring migration, unless you're listening to this in the throes of winter, in which case, dream about next year's spring migration. And as always, may the migratory winds and the birds be with you. So long, take care, and hear me next time. I'm off to go birding. <laughs>